Hey, welcome back to another episode of Girl Take the Lead, where each week we explore womanhood and leadership. Today I'm joined by An Thang Dao Shaw, the Executive Director of Belonging and Equity at John Muir Health. You may recall in episode 17, we explored the emotions of belonging and fitting in as they related to the book Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. On takes us further into this discussion and helps us understand the efforts um, that have been going on in this area and actions we can all take to support equity initiatives in our own communities. I hope you'll enjoy the listen. So on, welcome to Girl Take the Lead podcast. I am so glad that you're here. And I think you know that we've been doing a little bit on fitting in and belonging. So having you on our show is just, well, it's perfect timing, perfect timing. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, Do you want to just talk a little bit about uh, who you are, give background and so people know how amazing you are? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, uh, I I guess I'm going to start with the fact that um, I have a PhD in American Studies and um, Ethnicity from the University of Southern California. So um, yay, fight on, go Trojan, and go ACE, actually, the the, um, program of American Studies and Ethnicity at USC. Um, very dear to my heart. Um, A lot of my friends, you know, came from there. So um, uh, a great program. Um, So To have a PhD in American studies and ethnicity means that you are really being trained to teach at university level. Um, And I did teach a little bit, but I graduated in um, 2012. So the job market in higher education was still recovering um, from the aftermath of the 2008 recession. There were not a lot of tenure track jobs around. Tenure track means that, you know, um, you um, go into a job with the, with the understanding that after about five, six years, you are going to have enough publications and teaching experience, and then you go up for tenure. And after tenure, um, you are granted that academic freedom so that you can explore a different topic, right? And tenure track jobs um, at that time, and even now are pretty hard to come by with like the restructuring in higher education. Um, But I did teach for a few years after graduation. I taught ethnic studies and gender studies at the University of California, Riverside, um, at the San Francisco Arts, um, the the San Francisco um, State University, um, and a few arts colleges in the Bay Area. But um, after like about a year and a half or two years of um, teaching at multiple institutions, I wanted to explore an alternative career option. Um, And so I apply and receive a public fellowship from the American Council for Learned Societies that was meant to place um, people with PhDs in the humanities in the public and nonprofit sector with the understanding that our training, right, in the humanities and American studies and ethnicity is considered a humanities field, um, can benefit these fields. So that's how I became the first um, policy and racial equity analyst for the San Francisco Arts Commission. Um, And um, I'm proud to say that it was not just the first role in racial equity or with racial equity in the title um, at the Arts Commission, but it was also the first in the entire city and county of San Francisco. Um, And that was in 2018, right? So Mm -hmm. um, it was a little bit, you know, before 
um, everybody started hiring their chief diversity equity officer um, before equity, racial equity, justice becomes kind of like a sector on, um, on its own um, or a field that people go into for the professional development. Um, um, so I, I kind of like fell into the field um, and, and um, really enjoying it. Um, yeah. I have so been in it and still continuing until now. So 2019, would you say that was kind of where you started to see the beginning of a trend of diversity and belonging and equity kind of becoming part of corporate structures? Um, I would say later than that. So I got my um, title as, um, you know, the first senior policy and racial equity analyst at um, the city and county of San Francisco, the Arts Commission in 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and that was right around the time when the city and county and the public sector started exploring this idea of equity, right? And I think um, as a public sector, there was um, somewhat of an earlier interest and in reckoning because the public sector is tasked with serving um, you know, everyone. And uh, by that time, it has become very clear that a lot of the policies that have been created in the past and even existing policies have created and maintained inequities um, for the residents that the public sector is supposed to serve. And so um, the city county started exploring it at that point. Um, I happened to be in, in, that, um, uh, in that position in order to explore it with them. Um, and I had the right background in order to ask those questions. Um, mm -hmm. So let me just talk a little bit about, you know, like what was happening at that time. And I think that will help us think more about like, you know, how does this field come about, right? Um, so I, I kind of like fell into the field when I started um, this um, uh, fellowship at the San Francisco Arts Commission. Um, and at that time when I started, and even now, if you think about this field, right, and there's many names for it, depending on how many letters people would like to add to <laughs> an initiative or to a title, um, it is the field of diversity, equity, inclusion, um, justice, right? So you add all of these letters, but it is a very amorphous field, even now, right? What exactly does that mean? What are we focusing on? Who is this person that if you have hired like achieved um, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, um, justice uh, officer, who would this person report to? What is the career trajectory? How do you grow within the profession? Um, and, and it remains so until now, but when I started, it was even more amorphous than now. Um, and Lily, I, I fell into it. And I say that I fell into it because as a fellow, I actually started out, um, I was first tasked with evaluating the impact of this like 19 years old grant program that was meant to support artists and arts organizations from um, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, um, people of color communities. Um, and as someone who's trained to do research, I just started asking a lot of questions about well, how can you measure that impact? You want me to like evaluate the program, but how do you measure um, that impact, right? How do you collect demographic data? Do you know who you are serving? Do you know who is getting these grant money? Um, have you actually talked to the community to understand what their needs are and where the money should go? Um, and, and, and as I started asking those questions, um, 
the agency realized that we also need to enhance the capacity of the staff um, issuing these grants, uh, working with the grantees and, and uh, creating grant guidelines um, so that those questions can be asked at every step of the decision-making process, right? Mm -hmm. um, and not just at the end when I'm trying to evaluate, because if we wait until I evaluate to ask those questions, we don't actually have enough data in order to measure um, the impact. Um, and so by the time I finished the fellowship two years later, um, those questions have highlighted a need for the organization, for the Arts Commission at that time, for those questions to be asked and for those capacities to be built, for the data to be collected and analyzed on, an, on a regular basis um, that I was hired on full time. Um, so there I led uh, the agency to pass the first racial equity action plan in 2019 that focuses on both um, equitable for workforce development and equitable outcomes for their many different programs. Um, and I'm, I'm bringing up, you know, like this history um, to show that the way that the field kind of like evolved feels a little bit like that, that there are some people within different organizations starting to ask those questions. Yeah. Um, and not every organization from the beginning, actually many organizations um, are not very receptive to that kind of questions, right? Because those questions ask you to rethink the way that you do your work, um, rethink the way that you measure impact. Um, oftentimes it, 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 you know, feels like it's creating more work um, for the people doing that work. Um, oftentimes people are offended because, you know, let's say you are a program officer who's tasked with giving grants to um, communities of color. If somebody comes in and asks like, well, have you thought about how to measure this impact? Do you know if your grant dollar is actually doing what you intended to do? They might feel a little bit offended because they're doing this all this good work and somebody's coming in asking them like, are you sure it is doing what you want to do, right? right. Um, so too, I, think, I, I, yeah. I think part of what you've been been tasked with too is how do how do these fit within the organization like you said who does this report to um and you and it's almost like what i saw um was that people there there were outcomes that were probably things you couldn't measure like employee satisfaction i mean you, you can probably get a, a good measure on that one but just how people felt about belonging, like they had a place. You know, when I came through the ranks as half Mexican, I never affiliated myself with ethnic with, with my ethnicity. I went and it was all about assimilation. And what was so wonderful to see um, when I left was that, you know, there were different caucuses and people could be together and so the long-term it's, I, I can see what you have to work with. The long-term is people being more a part of the organization, feeling like they belong, which makes them more productive and happier to be there versus the short-term of what's the outcome of that initiative, because you're working for the long-term, I think. I, you know. It's got to be difficult in your situation. I, the reason I, I was so excited to have you here was that 
I like when our listeners know that there's a big issue, but there's these great people who are working on these initiatives, mm. tackling them, like working it out, you know, like doing the best you can do with what you have to work with. And um, I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the challenges that you think organizations face. Part of it, yeah, is acceptance from maybe some parts of the organization. What other things do they need to kind of consider if they want to do something like this? Yeah, so um, I, I, I want to start with the fact that just because the field is new doesn't, or like those positions, right, with equity in the title are new, doesn't mean that people have not been doing this work for a very long time. Um, mm -hmm. It is, uh, it is my belief that in every organization, there's probably has been people who have recognized in um, the inequities within their field, within the organization, within the communities that they are working and have tried to push for change. But oftentimes um, in the past, um, those people would either be ignored or they would be shunned and they would be pushed out because again, questioning and asking the status quo um, oftentimes is seen as, um, you know, you are the troublemaker, you're causing more work while we are just trying to do our thing here. Um, so I, I think the, the murder of George Floyd and the whole social awakening or reckoning that follow it, um, that plays out for all of us, you know, like on the screen of the TV and on the street, um, what's the catalyst, right, for organizations to realize that, wait, wait a minute, like, we can no longer compartmentalize, right? Our workers come to work um, with all these issues. If you were Black African at that point, there is no way for you to compartmentalize. For a lot of us, you know, um, who have friends, colleagues, family, um, who identify as Black African American, we carry their pain as well to work. And we realize that something needs to be done, not just outside of work, but also internally, because inequities exist everywhere, right? It is not just outside in the society and suddenly we enter um, our workplace and everything disappears. Um, so I think that was the catalyst that um, forces many organizations to recognize that we can no longer sweep these issues under the rug. Um, mm -hmm. And so these people who, you know, like before would probably be shunned and ignore and now suddenly be, become the resource that a lot of organizations are seeking out to say like, you know something here that that we did not know before, like, can you help us? Um, and, and so I, I think that is the uh, the kind of like the, the beginning uh, of the field. And um, that is both like, you know, the, I, I would say the, the blessing and also the, the challenge, right? Because you, um, leadership oftentimes, uh, realize that here is this resource, right? Here are these people who have been asking these questions. Can we come to them? Um, but what what is it that you need, right, in order to do this work beyond like just reaching out to these people? So I always say that if an organization, um, uh, if and when an organization, I think it's a when, not a if at this point, um, if you want to start this, uh, an initiative, right, or a program or focus on be, uh, on belonging, equity, diversity, inclusion, justice, all of that. Um, as part of your company's uh, culture and the work that you do, you need to start by listening to the folks in your organizations that, you know, oftentimes have been pushing for change for many years and have been ignored. 
Mm -hmm. um, create the chance uh, and the space for them to share to a broader audience so that um, people who may have felt that but may have not been very vocal about it for multiple reason, you know, fear of losing a job, fear of being ostracized, you know, um, introverts. Um, Resignation. So that they can, <laughs> yeah, so that they can feel um, resonant, right? They, they can feel that now they are allowed to speak about that. Um, but it is not enough to just ask people to share if you're not ready to act. So I think leadership buy-in is key, right? So whenever you ask people to share their experience, possibly potential solutions, things that they have noticed in the organization, um, you must be ready to act on it with resources. Because um, if you ask people to do this work as part of like a side gig as volunteers, you are going to burn out your most passionate people um, and you will create more distress because people will feel like, okay, here's one more chance for you to really like exploit my passion, but what is coming out of that, right? So um, when you ask people for opinion and for, um, their, to, for them to share their experience, you have to have the leadership buy-in to act. I also say one of the key things that you need is um, probably data, right? Demographic data so that you can stratify um, the data, especially if you're looking at outcomes from your work, outcomes from your program, um, outcomes from your initiatives. Um, because without that, uh, that demographic data, without being able to stratify it by race, ethnicity, language, by gender identity, by sexual orientation, you are not going to see the disparities, right? Because on average, everything might look fine, but once you stratify that data, you are going to see that 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 fine result is not fine for everyone to the same level. Um, and equity work is all about addressing uh, disparities and inequities. And then I, I think I mentioned that very briefly, but I think it's very important to put resources behind the work, yeah. um, to not see it as you know, a volunteer gig, um, as something that people do on the side, but really um, think about that as, um, if you think about quality, right, there is no quality without equity, because if you measure impact and you don't measure how that impact is for different populations, um, you might actually not be as successful as you think you are. Yeah. Do you think it comes that there's a generational impact here that Gen Zers and millennials are much more vocal about equality and diversity than say boomers and the older gen X's? Um, I would say there are many, many different, right? I, I would not group it in that way. As I said, you know, there have been people doing this work for years. Um, actually, when I entered the Arts Commission, one of my first supervisor, um, you know, she was, um, um, uh, she is, you know, in her, uh, in her 60s. And um, I, I think at one point we were talking about, you know, like um, gender equity. And she said, oh, I march on the street so that you guys can be here. And I was like, that's totally fair. Yeah. There were people who marched on the street in the 60s so that, you know, to open the door for people like me, you know, like a person of color um, to be able to enter college and, and you know, like uh, get the education that I need. So, um, I think every generation has had people who have been vocal, who have been pushing for change, oftentimes um, at the cost uh, 
of their personal well-being, their personal safety. Um, so every generation has that. What we are seeing right now is, um, I think the society being more open to hearing um, the scenting voice, right? So um, when we march on the street now, um, we, are, we are less in danger of being hosed down, like you know the, the marchers of Selma, for example. And I definitely also think there is um, a, a racial difference here, right? So uh, what we are seeing right now, especially after George Floyd is, um, it is not just black people marching on the street, right? It is, uh, it is a very multiracial um, coalition of people marching and demanding change um, and asking the society to address, you know, the anti-black racism and violence that has been taken place for, for generation. Um, and that in and of itself shows that, you know, like when black people speak up for themselves, they are oftentimes ignored, but when other people join that, and, and speak up um, with them, then the society is what much more willing to hear. Uh, and I think that in of itself is you know, a sign of uh, the, the racism is, that is alive in our society, but that change allow us to see the change that, um, that, that we are seeing right now with, with organizations and the society being more open to um, the dissenting voices that our younger generation is voicing. Do you think that it'll have impact in the way um, people are hired? And, you know, I brought it up in our episode that I think it was um, episode 17 about the question being when you hire somebody, are they going to fit in, you know, versus, you know, are, do they have characteristics that would allow them to belong, you know? Um, I, I just use myself as the example that if, if I've worked so hard to assimilate and not be different, but now you can be different and be okay and, and be great at your job and, you know, know that it's the whole person coming to work, you know, um, you know, after the tragedy in Texas, I can only imagine how heavy my heart would have been to go into the office and to mm. have to work, um, knowing how many people, oh, it just it still gets me, you know, but, um, it just seems like it's, it's such a healthier place when you're, have that openness for people to come as a total person. Yeah, I I do think and hope that it will change the way that that we hire. Um, I do think that people are more productive. Uh, I think that our job uh, outcomes is going to be better when we have um, all different kinds of people, right? Uh, if for nothing else, then for the fact that, you know, multitude of uh, ways of thinking, multitude of experience can um, influence the solutions that we come up with, right? Because it can then reflect the range of experiences that, that, um, that we have in the society. Um, and oftentimes with hiring, um, and especially when this question comes up, um, I get asked a lot like, you know, well, I, I was just hiring this person to like fulfill the diversity quota. 
Um, and I say, don't think about it in terms of quota. Think about it in terms of what does diversity really mean, right? What does having this diverse experience mean? If you are an organization and each of our, every organization now serves, you know, a very diverse population because we as a society is a very diverse population. Um, if you don't have people that come from those backgrounds that can understand those languages, those experiences, you are actually going to produce a less ideal product, right? Your product is not going to meet the needs of everyone mm -hmm. that you are trying to, um, that you are trying to serve. Um, and I use the word serve because I came from the public sector and it's like, you know, your customer, your client, your residents that, that you are working with, um, all of those very diverse population require your workforce to uh, design products and solutions that meet all of their needs. And what's the best way to find out about that is have people who have gone through it themselves, who understand, right? Who, who know the people from those communities and, and, and their experiences and, and the need that, um, that they have voice or not, because oftentimes we don't always get to hear from everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that, that we are serving. So actually diversity, and if somebody is bringing in a background that no one in your organization has, see that as the asset that they are bringing. Don't think about it as like we are doing them, you know, a service by hiring them to fulfill a quota. Think about diversity as an asset that you as an organization need to acquire because otherwise you are not going to meet the need of your client population. I'm putting my marketing hat on you know, the biggest trend right now is, is really personalization. We, we almost have a, an expectation that the standard be, you know, me, if you're going to try and quote market to me, you need to know me. And the way that you've spoken about it is if your employees and your staff know that person that you're trying to reach, you know, you're that much further ahead in the game because you come across as authentic, believable, and people want that now. They want the connection. They, it's interesting just to, for me to reflect on my career and remember that, you know, I would go out and try and find the one message that the majority of the population would find compelling. Now uh, you go out and you want to segment that message as much as you can. So I feel like they're talking to yo and they understand who I am, which is not the same as talking to my Gen Z -er or the millennial daughters that I have. So, um, it's all, it all seems to be flowing, you know, so nicely together. I mean, it, it just, there's a lot we have to do, but there's a lot that, that you can see potential and how that diversity is just going to help organizations be more creative and reduce the anger. You know, if you belong and you're listened to I don't think you come to work angry. Yeah. Come, right. It's got to have an impact on the people that have felt 
disenfranchised, just extremely angry and lash out with violence. You know, I mean, I just think that it's just going to make, maybe I'm just too optimistic in a lot of ways or or hopeful, (laughs) but it seems like it's just going to make everything a little bit better. Yeah, I, I do think that feeling like you belong is good for your mental health, right? Because you don't feel like you have to leave a part of you outside the, um, outside the door when you come in. Um, and you don't have to worry that if you slip, right? Let's say you are heartbroken because you are a parent coming to work the day after 19 children were killed. Um, you, you don't feel like you have to come to work and let's say you slip and, and tear up because you see a child, um, that is not going to be counted against you. That must be good for your mental health. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, I watched um, the morning show, right? And I was so taken by this one scene where, you know, a death is reported and the team has to can't feel a thing because they've got to turn around and get that news on the air. And it wasn't, there was no time to process anything. And how often I have felt in my career that there was just no time. Like you just stuff it down. You just keep going. You don't acknowledge it. And, you know, it makes me hopeful that yes, you can bring your whole self to work, you know, moms, if they need, you know, they had a rough night, you know, it's like raising your hand and say, it's one of those nights I had, you know, and we just, we open up a little bit, you know, we just make room, hold the space for everyone. Um, And I know that's, you have a lot of challenges in your job, on, I just like, oh my God, you know, she's just so amazing to, to be the first. I mean, you led an organization into how to do this, how, how to bring people along and, <laughs> and how tall are you? You're like, <laughs> and just let, letting you know, listeners, she's a badass when it comes to things. She can really work. Um, and she's, she's really whipped an organization and, and provided a lot of structure. I think that's one of the other things that you've mentioned that um, kind of taken away from if someone wants to do this kind of thing, it's not just about, I mean, you've got to have structure, you have to have metrics, you got to be grounded in what you're doing. Is there anything else there that you want to mention? Yeah, I am, you know, just like really shouting out to, to everyone who is, who is in the field because I, um, I, I think the beauty and the challenge of uh, doing this work now is that um, to a large extent, I, um, the, the positions that I, all the positions that I have held in belonging and equity really are first in the organizations where they are just created and then Um, I get to be the first in that position. So there's a beauty and a challenge to um, having uh, to shape and to create those jobs based on what you see an organization needs. Um, And even though, you know, I do have that training, the academic training to um, that provides me with a theoretical framework, a lot of times it is translating that theoretical, that the that theory and the theoretical framework into practice 
on the job. And that requires a lot of, you know, trial and error. Um, it requires a lot of listening and also like owning up when something goes wrong, right? I think um, the first thing that I have learned on the job is that I am not always going to get it right. Um, and when things go wrong, let's not beat around the bush. Let's just apologize first, right? It's like, I mess up. This is not something that I intended, but I understand that the impact is, is real. Um, and um, I would do better and, you know, like let, let's sit down and see what's the best way for us to, um, to move forward from here and, and improve in the future. Um, and then the other thing that I also want to do and, you know, like not, uh, not an, an advertisement since you come from marketing, but I do want to give a shout out to like, you know, some organizations that have done this work so well and helping, you know, people like me to transition and to translate. So um, the Government Alliance for Racial Equity and Race Forward. Race Forward is, you know, one of the oldest organization working on um, social justice um, right here in the Bay Area. They're based in Oakland. The Government Alliance for Racial Equity was born in Seattle. Um, they have recently joined. Um, but these two organizations have really made it their mission to, you know, like, um, not just focus on people, but focus on systems, right? So how do we change systems? Because if we just focus on, you know, like the individual alone, we are forever relying on, you know, like people's passion, people's capacity, people having the bandwidth in order to do the work. If we change the system, then we're creating better policy, better practices that people can follow, and that leads to better result. Um, and when I was with the city and county of San Francisco, I took a 12 months long training with GARE. Um, with a number of other practitioners in the city and the county of San Francisco. And, and that, that training was really important because it's not like a one-off training, but it is, you know, like a 12 months long, you build your network. I am still in contact with a lot of the people from that, um, from that cohort that, that I train with. Um, and uh, the, the conversations that we had, you know, like they, they were not providing you with the silver bullet, right? Here's how to do it. But here are like all the things that you should be thinking about. Here are all the challenges that you might face. Um, here's like the, the why and how, and here's some examples of how people have navigated that. All of that has been really invaluable as I navigate this emerging field to design the right strategy for each organization that I have worked for. So just really wanna give a shout out to that organization and a shout out to you know, all the people who are trying to navigate right now um, this still emergent field and, and doing a lot of amazing work sometimes, you know, with minimal resources or um, it, this kind of work takes toll because you, um, again, it's impossible to compartmentalize, right? We don't want people to compartmentalize. So a lot of time, you know, like um, this work begins at home, you take it to work, and then you take it home. Every news that I watch, I'm like, oh, who is impacted by this news? And how can I support them? Uh, what kind of system are we going to create so that we don't have to constantly hear about the bad news that are happening? Um, and then, you know, who can I collaborate with? So uh, I, I think it, it it is the kind of job that um, definitely plays an emotional burden on you, um, you definitely need, you know, your tribe, your people, your network. Yeah. Um, but the the when you see a result, it's beautiful because mm -hmm. you know that um, the impact is everything that we do leads to like you know these tiny little change. But together, 
um, when multiple people are doing this work and making these tiny little changes, the kind of change that we can make together is so exponentially bigger and larger than, than yeah. you know, like the, the sum of our part. And it can really create a future that I, you know, as a mother, am hoping to create for my children as well. Yeah. We'll put some of the links. I think people might find that interesting to check some of these organizations out that you gave the shout out to. And um, we'll put those in the show notes for, for everyone. Um, I think maybe we can shift a little bit to what maybe we can do personally, you know, and um, maybe it has a little bit to do with the you know, what impl implicit bias is and, you know, how that might relate to social justice and yeah. Um, so I usually uh, put a disclaimer out that like, I like to talk about bias and it's sometimes not very productive to distinguish between implicit or explicit, right? Because bias is bias. And when we act on it, um, the impact that it has on other people is material. So whether you do it subconsciously or consciously, does not matter too much to the person on the on the receiving end. Um, and I'm also fully aware that you know implicit bias training um, is one of the first training um, that every organization is going to contract for or you know provide to their um, to their um, uh, employees when they embark on this work because it is very important, right? We see bias everywhere in policies in the way that people interact. Um, there's, you know, like different level of bias at the personal level, at the interpersonal, at the systemic and the structural level. So it is very important to think about bias, um, but it is not enough to just provide implicit bias training to your staff, right? Um, oftentimes, um, and uh, I, I think you see it less so because, you know, you see a little bit of an evolution in the in the, in the field where people started moving away from like implicit bias training to really asking the question about like, well, what is the outcomes that we are trying to reach and what more do we need? Um, but oftentimes uh, when you conclude an implicit bias training, people walk away with, oh, everybody's biased. I am not different. And that's where it ends. And that is a dangerous place to end at because you can say, if everybody has a bias, um, I can be the victim of bias as well. So then I don't need to do anything because everybody has bias. What I would like people to take away, and I think how bias connects to social justice is everybody has bias and therefore it is all of our job to address the bias in our own behavior, in the system that we are operating in, in the structures that we consciously, subconsciously are upholding through our action and through our work. Um, and when you change it that way, right, it, um, then you place the emphasis on, okay, everybody is biased. What are we going to do about it? And not just like this resign acceptance of everybody is biased. There's nothing we can do about it. There's a mm -hmm. lot of things that we can do it. And I hope that everybody will do something about that. Um, you know, like start by examining your your own privileges um, or where you're coming from, right? That can influence the biases that that you can have. Um, and uh, I just had my my second baby. <laughs> He's like less than two months mm -hmm. old now. Um, 
But one of the things that um, has become very apparent to me during this pregnancy, um, because I, I got pregnant, you know, at, at 40 years old. So in, you know, the, the medical language of pregnancy, I think I'm ancient. And so there's all <laughs> kinds of tests that I have to do. There's like, there's a stress test that I have to go to twice a week, right? Um, that, um, um, you know, that can last anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half. It is located in this location that is only accessible by car. Um, they are super busy, the clinic. So, you know, like I have zero choice as to when I can come. I just pretty much take the first slot because you have to do it on these days. Um, and so you have zero choices, right? Um, and I was able to do, I say, 85% of all those tests. And that is a sign of many privileges that I carry, right? I have a car that allows me to go to, to that. I have enough sick time that I can say like, I'm going to take time to go to the doctor twice a week. If each of the appointment is an hour and a half, um, that means, you know, three hours a week of sick time that I have to take. Not everybody has that privilege. Um, I have, you know, like a supported uh, partner who also has enough of a flexibility with his job to support me with my first child, right? Whenever I have to go in super early or super late um, to pick up and, and take care of our first son. Um, and, and all of that uh, becomes apparent to me uh, because I suddenly have to reckon with it, right? And I, I can only imagine how many women does not have all those privileges that I have? And if this test is so crucial to make sure that my child is being born healthy, um, then what does it mean for those moms who do not have the choice to take the test, right? Um, and what kind of choices are we as a society making um, in, in the regard of, of those children and those women um, who cannot afford to go in for those tests? Um, and I think that self-examination is very important to realize, you know, like all the things that we take for granted that other people don't, because then when we think about solutions, we don't think just about what is the most convenient for me. Yeah. If I think about just what is the most convenient for me, I'll say like, oh, this place needs to like, <laughs> you know, be right next to my house, right? Um, or this place cannot, they have to work with my schedule. If I think about all the other privileges that I carry that allow me to go to those tests, I would say like, can we provide a free shuttle that goes from BART to that, um, to that clinic? Can we ask them to open a little bit later? Can we prioritize, right? Can we create a system of prioritization that allow women who you know, can only come after five o'clock because that's when the shift ends? Um, can we make sure that they can come in at, at 6 p.m. and that they don't have to wait an hour for their appointment, but because this is the amount of time that they have, can we provide child care so that if a mom has a second child, she can maybe bring the child to that, um, to that appointment and be with that child? Um, can we make sure that, you know, women actually have adequate leave in this country uh, and, and enough, um, enough sick time so that, uh, so that, uh, so that, so that they can take the, the test when necessary. Um, and I think when you, when you think about um, all the privilege that we have that influence the way that we walk through the world um, and we think about other people who might not have that, it allows us to think more broadly and create and design 
um, solutions that meet the needs of other people as well. And I always think that if we start with those who are most vulnerable, right, with those who um, have the least, but you know, might have the greatest need, right, the most vulnerable population, if our solution starts with them in mind, everybody's going to benefit yeah. because I actually did not want to drive every, <laughs> twice a week to that appointment. I would gladly take a shuttle, for example, from BART where I work um, because then I actually can continue to like, you know, read a book, for example, instead of sitting in traffic. Um, and and I, I truly think that if we start with the population that is most vulnerable in mind, the solutions that we design is going to help everybody, even those who don't think that they need that solution. That's so beautifully said on, I mean, what, what comes up for me with that is humility. Definitely this, the openness to understand Brene Brown says something interesting. She says, it's not about walking in someone else's shoes. Like you can't do that really. You can't know somebody else's emotions. You can't know what their life really is, but you can ask them, you know, you can, you can learn from them. And it is a marathon and not a sprint, right? This is the kind of work that because it takes a lot of time and effort and um, collective effort really from many different people, ideally from everyone um, to dismantle, you know, a system that has been producing and maintaining inequities for centuries. Um, and so I, I truly think that, you know, give each other grace and, and start with small changes. I am a big proponent of just start where you are, even if it means that this change is so tiny, is it going to make any difference? I think if that tiny change is going to help one person and each of us is going to make one small change that's going to help one person, a million people is already helping a million people. Um, and uh, if we get bogged down and if we, you know, um, coming from the public sector, sometimes the public sector gets inundated by like over research and over analysis, right? You, you have to do so many things before you even embark on one tiny change that um, it, you are overwhelmed by the, by the enormity of the problem. Um, just, just do it. <laughs> Be right. like Nike. Just do it. That um, sounds great. Start today. Start small. Start from exactly where you are. Sometimes it, it requires you to ask one question at the right meeting. Um, is checking in with one employee. Is um, asking you know your employee who never says anything during the meeting for their opinion, right? Um, all those tiny acts um, can lead to big changes because you change the way that, that we always operate. And sometimes it's those little rattles that can, that can shake up an entire system. Um, so I would say it's a marathon, start today, start training, and then one day we'll run 26 miles. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I think we've done a good job on, is there anything more that you think you'd like to cover? You feel like we've kind of I think we, yeah. we, we've done a good job of covering yeah, a I lot think, of different Yeah, I think elements. it's good. That was fun. <laughs> thank, you for, <laughs> thank you for taking me through this. That's always a first. I, I hope you can edit something out of it. Um, okay, this is fun. It, well, when you're that passionate and it comes through, you know, the way it does when you, you start to talk, 
um, you know, it's infectious. Like we all want to like, what can we do to help? And, you know, what, what action can I take? And I think the idea that you offered us of looking at ourselves and going internally and looking at our own biases, being honest about those is a really good one. And then stop rattling the system. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to this episode. We're so excited to have it and we hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for being here. Thank you here. so much, Joe. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. And if you liked our episode, we'd love to have a five star and some comments. Also, please join our public Facebook group, Girl Take the Lead. We've got some great episodes that are coming up. Some topics around resilience, confidence, the emotion of bittersweet and courage. So if you have some topics um, that you'd like for us to cover, please DM me and let me know. Uh, my contact information will be in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks.